This week on Waterflying, we are talking to Paul Richards, the CEO of Claymore Floats. You are listening to Waterflying, a show dedicated to all things seaplanes. Brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. My name is Steve McCoy. I'm the executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association, which is the world's largest nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of the waterflying community. Climb aboard! We're about to start today's episode. Well, welcome back to another episode of Waterflying. We are here recording at Sun and Fun 2023 with my good friend, Mr. Paul Richards, the CEO of Claymore Floats. Steve, it's good to be here. It is. It's always good to get the two of us together. We generally see each other three or four times a year, uh, Sun and Fun, uh, up at Air Venture at the Seaplane Base. Uh, you can be found. And then, of course, uh, Greenville. You have to come to Greenville. I mean. Well, Greenville is a, is a special place, as you know. And uh, I guess it's not appropriate to say we've got to stop meeting like this. We, we've got to continue meeting like We this. do have to. We have to get you up to Alaska. Yeah, right? well, I've, I've been somewhat recently, and I haven't been enough. That's for sure. Man, seaplane flying nirvana, is it not? It is. So I have to tell you, I'm thrilled to have Paul on the show today because uh, he's a great friend and it's been great to know him. I get to know him over the years. Uh, he's been involved in several aircraft projects that uh, I've been privy to, I guess. Uh, MVP going back several years ago and uh, the ATOL, which you're still involved with. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the MVP to a certain extent, even though the project's dormant, one can say it's not dead. There you go. And that makes me very happy because it is a cool design. And uh, then uh, you got involved uh, through the MVP um, with Claire, our, our good friend who was the former owner of Claymore, which makes a amazing set of uh, or, or amazing floats. And they were made up in Canada. And I guess uh, Claire was getting to the end of, uh, of his time uh, being the steward of the company. Well, it- as you, uh, I'm sure you're aware, Claire started the company back mm-hmm. uh, around 23, 24 years ago. Mm-hmm. Avid pilot, avid seaplane flyer, and at the time became very keenly interested in having a set of composite floats mm-hmm. for his own aircraft. Found that that was a little hard to come by for what he was looking for. And I think it was a Super Cub. It absolutely, yeah. absolutely was, and which he built himself and flew for 40-some-odd years, as I recall, and just recently sold it. But uh, yeah, yeah. with great angst, I He's think. kind of moved into the uh, bus world now. Yeah. He has a great uh, roadshow bus. Uh, bus and boating. Yes. Uh, bus and boating. Claire is, is uh, in his early 80s now. He's been a fixture in the, in the flying area, but it's time for him to to look at some other uh, other venues for his energies and activities. But he um, decided that he needed wanted some composite floats for his Super Cub, uh, couldn't find what he was looking for, and being the industrious, resourceful guy he is, said, well, I'm going to build them. Yeah. And built a set. Uh, lo and behold, some other folks saw them and said, what are these? And I think I like these. And would you build some for me? 
And again, being industrious and, and uh, uh, said, well, well, yes, I will. And lo and behold, Claymar Floats was founded from that uh, 20-some-odd years ago. And since that time till now, we've put Floats, Claire, and, and uh, the current evolution of Claymar on 26 different airframes. Wow. All That's experimentals. Yep. All experimentals. But uh, 26 different airframes ranging from LSA-class airplanes like the Kit Foxes and Highlanders and Aerotrex and Aeroprax. And the upper end of our range uh, is oriented towards things like the Murphy Moose. Yeah. And we've got uh, three other sizes in between. That's right. And I've flown uh, uh, glass tars. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Matter of fact, uh, our our friend uh, from the Birches. Uh, John Willard uh, get to fly his airplane quite a bit. Yeah, we uh, we're fortunate to have quite a contingent of glass air products, the Glass Stars and the current Sportsman Two Plus Twos mm-hmm. that uh, that fly on either our twenty one eighties in the form in the uh, for the Glass Stars and the Two Plus Twos go on our twenty five hundreds. Yeah, well, let's go back to your history because we kind of jumped right into the history of of Claymar. Um, and, uh, but I always like to know where the genesis of, of, because there's, everyone has a story and a legacy of how they got to where they are and you, you do as well. So where did the journey begin in aviation? What was the spark that, uh, started this journey, um, to now be becoming a CEO of a, a float manufacturing company? Well, prob- probably the, the spark may have been uh, from my brother, my older brother, who is a Vietnam-era F-4 guy, uh, naval aviator, and stand, being allowed to stand at one point on the, near the runway at Brunswick, what was former the Brunswick Naval Br- Air Brunswick Station. Brunswick Naval Air Station. And I've come full circle <laughs> well, to talk I was going to say, you know, yeah. But uh, watching an F-4 roll down the flight line, clean, full afterburner at uh, 400 knots when they came A little bit by. of a bark. A <laughs> uh, bit of a bark, that's right. And, you know, just being enthralled with it at that point and, frankly, wanting to follow in his footsteps. Um, and that got derailed a little bit by a combination of eyes not being good enough at the mm-hmm. time when I was able to do it. And the Vietnam uh, War coming to an end and uh, the military furloughing pilots. Uh, so going the military route wasn't going to work for me. Uh, thought about the airlines, but the economy was such at that time. This is 1977 when I graduated. I was going to say, I wanted to put that in context. So a lot of people, maybe the younger listeners in the audience don't realize that uh, I was 10 years old in 1977 and started my journey, and I was riding the airlines, you know, asking them to help me uh, on my journey to in the pursuit of being an airline pilot until I got into the more exciting parts of aviation. Uh, but the, the conundrum was, uh, at the end of the Vietnam War, as it's winding down in the mid-'70s, uh, all these war pilots went to the airlines. Exactly right. And so they chomped up, they they filled any position. There was a glut of these guys that had come out of the fighter and the bomber world coming out of the militaries as the war ran down. And they they just occupied, they were the most likely candidates. They were the easiest ones for the airlines to hire. So if you had not been in the military, getting an airline job at that time, it was it was like all the pilots at that time were coming out of the military. 
Exactly. And, and also, at that time, the economy wasn't doing that yeah. great. I mean, we were is, going through the gas crisis yeah, years. Gas, and the Gas the, crisis and 17% interest rates, yeah. you may recall. Oh, yeah. And pre-deregulation of the airline industry. So it, it, there was not the it amount It was not of, a good time it, no. to be in the pilot market as a looking for a job with no, an airline. No, it, it, it wasn't, which was distressing to me. But it put me in a position where I said, well, I'll take my engineering degree and I'll go apply it elsewhere. But the uh, the spark of wanting to fly never left me, and finally, once I got my feet under under me a little bit in a career path, uh, and probably in my early thirties, I I took it on my own to go start flying. Good, and uh, learned to fly uh, starting out in J threes on a little two thousand foot grass strip in Hampton, New wow, Hampshire. Doesn't get any better than that. Oh, it was it was, <laughs> it was wonderful, and. Um, you know, went from there, progressed up into more capable airplanes, uh, uh, owned a Bonanza or two along the way. And, you know, at one, at one point in time, I came to realize that as much as I enjoyed flying capable airplanes that could, could go fast and go places, it, I was having not as much fun as I was as I did flying yep. a J three with the with the gullwing door or the doors yeah, open the door it's at five hundred feet on a nice July day and so I, my mind started to head gravitate back in that direction exactly and then you know started to learn learn to fly floats and um, got my float plane rating at Twitchell's Airport which some folks might know of. yes uh, rest in peace uh, Dale uh, Twitchell who had been a fixture forever. Yeah, uh, and yeah, rest in peace for Twitchells. It's a, it's a shame. And Those, Dale, <laughs> it, yeah, exactly. Uh, but uh, so it had, it had always been an avocation. Mm-hmm. My vocation had been more in engineering, uh, business development, and microelectronics, embedded software. Uh, I had spent quite a bit of time. Working in those areas, ultimately with venture capital-backed companies, that was we were doing some innovative things on uh, wireless networking technology at a at a sensor level. Uh, and remember, spread spectrum technology. Well, that's what. So we started with 900 megahertz spread spectrum frequency wow, hopping okay. technology. So, migrated over to 2.4 gigahertz. Not to get off on that tangent. Yeah, we can get geeky on that. So yeah. my background is electronic warfare uh, research and development, and which I did in special operations in the Air Force. So yeah, I'm, I when you say that, it's funny because you and I have never talked about spread spectrum technology, <laughs> which most people have probably never heard of that's, because that's it right. doesn't even exist anymore the way but it was the thing that was coming out we were um, when I got into the private world outside of the military uh, we were working with companies that we were doing spread spectrum technology with so well and I'll I, I won't I'll one more comment on it then I'll leave it but uh, so the trick that we developed with the technology we were working with was to make Autonomous, self-configuring, self-healing networks capable of forming themselves and reforming themselves in the case of a per, uh, perturbation 
based on spread spectrum frequency hopping technology using an 8-bit microcontroller mm-hmm. that slept 99.9% of the time. And the whole idea was you would jump if there was any interference on any one frequency, you would maintain a solid signal by jumping frequencies to the next frequency. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, but we're all, maybe, but yeah, maybe we're, we're, boy, we're geeking out on this <laughs> stuff now. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but I did that... Um, that was my vocation in that area. And then I guess you would say maybe as a second career or con- to continue doing things, uh, decided that I might do things that uh, that I'd found as a vocation. Mm-hmm. And that led me back into aviation and manufacturing development. You'd mentioned the MVP and, and, yep. and the ATOL, uh, which are uh, LSA hulled amphib development program which is how we met with the mvp i think that was the first time we ever met exactly exactly and i i got involved with that project uh helping the original founders out on the development side of it and some funding and and things like that uh and that's actually how i got to know claire seeley and he at that time was uh, uh staring at 80 and Felt that he had, had gone through some life changes. Exactly. And felt that he had carried the company. He was, he was kind of at a transition point where in order to continue to support the growth, he w- either needed to expand and invest or find someone that felt they could do that. Mm-hmm. And so we created a meeting of the minds and, and uh, we struck a deal on the company that involved acquiring the technology and um, and relocating the company from just outside of London, Ontario, where it had been. In Canada. In Canada, yeah. and relocated it to Brunswick, Maine. Which, which is, is fascinating is because I remember talking to Claire. I knew that he was desiring uh, to make a transition, uh, but he was very concerned about it going in the right direction and and continuing and prospering and uh our good friend and your customer phil lockwood uh probably had a very vested interest in in making sure that uh, the company uh again uh, not only had a successful handover but was able to carry on and um, i'd have to tell you we were kind of joking about it earlier but uh, you actually brought a company you actually brought manufacturing back to the united states or into the united states which not enough people do. So uh, hats off to you for uh, bringing a manufacturing company into the United States for a change. Well, <laughs> it, it was it was gratifying. And at the time when we were negotiating this, which is 2017, 2018, we actually made the transition in uh, 2018. So uh, five years ago now. And um, yeah, it was at a time when the, the mantra was things marching away from. Manufacturing mm-hmm. is leaving the United States. And, uh, you know, we're, we, we have a small footprint manufacturing operation, so we didn't, we didn't move the needle in the, on a national level. No, but, but we'll take it one piece at a time, and we're yeah. happy to do that. And you did it in a very innovative way. So you have a very unique situation with where you're located at Brunswick. Uh, I've been to the facility many times now, and I was just there, what, last 
uh, July, yeah, I yeah. guess, was the last yeah. time I was there. Yeah. Uh, but it's a really unique situation. So you talked about watching this F-4 at this Navy base, uh, which was an amazing, a large facility, 11,000-foot uh, runway or something like that there. Uh, I know landing the Super Cub, I can go, you know, I can take off across the runway or land across the runway. Um, and it's always funny going in there because it's such a huge facility. But we've seen so many military bases closed and redeveloped. And it breaks my heart so many cause, in cases because they're very historical bases. And this was an instance where the base had closed but they kept all the infrastructure in place. And I'll let you explain uh, some of the benefits of, of the way they did this because they were very forward thinking. I really have to give it to the powers that be that repurposed this base in, in a way that's much better than what, what I've seen in many other cases. Well, it, it, uh, yeah, it was a unique opportunity. Uh, and I, I think the, the folks, uh, I'll, I'll kudos to Steve Levesque, who was the executive director of the Brunswick uh, MIRA, the Midcoast Regional Redevelopment Authority, which was the authority spun up to repurpose the base. You know, it, the assets were handed over. And, and of course, the notion was to recreate the employment and the economic activity for the community that mm-hmm. had existed in support of the, the naval base. Now, uh, and uh, Brunswick Naval Air Station actually uh, goes back into World War II, uh, had its mm-hmm. origins, and I think he maybe even a little before, I'm, I don't want to be an authority on the actual history of it, but uh, at its closure, it was a P-3 Orion base, yeah. so, uh, it, uh, and yeah, we have, we have a... a Dual 8,000-foot by 200-foot runways, yeah. uh, hundreds of thousands of hangars, uh, square feet of square hangar feet space. Square feet of hangar space, yeah. And, but the, the thing that Steve and the authority did that I thought was brilliant is they took what was originally the intermediate maintenance facility uh, that was supporting the P-3 Orion base. So this was the, a 90,000-square-foot building which housed machine shops. Uh, welding shops, paint booths, uh, you know, all of the... This very expensive taxpayer-funded infrastructure... That's right. That normally gets, quite honestly, bulldozed and taken to a landfill all too often. Exactly. So uh, they had the foresight to realize that this is a very valuable asset, and rather than just either uh, gut the building and rent it, they would create a business incubator, a manufacturing business incubator, as, as opposed to what I would consider to be a typical business incubator, which are very valuable. But, you know, typically those types of facilities have uh, conference rooms and, and shared office space and, and, you know, ping pong tables mm-hmm. and, and those types of things, which we have mm-hmm. very nicely done. But we also have about 60,000 square feet of heavy manufacturing space that incorporates, again, machine shops, wood shops, welding shops. It's amazing. Well, uh, overhead cranes. Uh, 3D uh, printers. 3D. The largest 3D printer I have ever seen. And the foam cutters. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and I will say, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, maybe say that I had a little bit of influence with... Uh, at the time, the creation of a 
high-performance compo- composite manufacturing mm-hmm. facility, uh, which was a collaborative effort between the MIRA, the Midcoast Regional Redevelopment Authority, the Maine Technology Institute, the, the community at large. They threw in a little over a million dollars and created this high-performance composites uh, uh, manufacturing. With a huge autoclave. Yeah, we, we have a... Uh, we have an environmentally controlled uh, layup room with uh, state-of-the-art vacuum systems. That's right. That vacuum system is unbelievable. And if you've ever worked in composites, especially in a manufacturing situation, that system is out of this world. We, uh, and, and, and as part of that, we have what is probably the world's largest uh, pizza oven. Yes. Uh, in the sense that... Uh, you could drive a car in. Well, you can <laughs> easily drive a car in. You can put a, the fuselage of virtually any GA aircraft into or a yeah. wing. And it's capable of maintaining very tight tolerances up to 450 degrees F for processing uh, pre-preg and high-performance composites. Yeah. And we've got the uh, freezers uh, on site if we need. Because you have to, a lot of people may not realize this. So number one, uh, you do have to bake composites. And you also have to, until you use the resins, they have to be refrigerated. It's a very crucial part. So these are typically for someone trying to get an upstart in creating a composite product or getting into composite manufacturing. One of the biggest expenses of getting into the business is getting the ovens and getting the refrigeration required. That's right. And, and you know, you don't have to have that. There's a lot of... You know, there's, the, there's layups that you don't that, have to do right, that. That's right. But the, if you want to employ modern technology and, it, and continue to maybe cut along the, the bleeding edge of technology, mm-hmm. and, and I, I won't claim that we're on that bleeding edge. We're, we're not. I mean, we're solidly in the middle of high-performance composites, but we use... Uh, vacuum infusion technology. We use uh, thermally foamed foam, foam cores. We we bake out our products to in post processing uh, to elevate the um, uh, the set points on them. Uh, so it's it is very valuable to have that capability, and we use it, and it also provides us overhead in the future mm-hmm. to do more advanced things than even what we're doing right now. Yeah. And let's talk, as we're talking about all this, so you've taken basically an existing design. You've improved on the hull design, the hydrodynamics of the bottom of the, of the float, which, you know, really uh, alters the way that the, the float performs on the water, makes it more efficient, a better float. Yeah. And, and again, I want to stress that you guys are making experimental floats at this point, and that's what the company has been known for. So, while a lot of the listeners might know Whip Air and PK and Aeroset and Edo, they might not as be uh, as familiar with Claymar. But if you've been in the experimental seaplane world, you know Claymar because that's been your best option. There's been a couple other players, Montana and a, a, a couple others, sure. uh, Full Lotus. Uh, but there haven't been a lot of options, and especially in the specific area you are making these composite floats. Yeah, so, and that's an interesting point. So, yeah, we're not as much of a household named as the other fine manufacturers that you uh, that you mentioned, and I sort of attribute that to 
if somebody is going through their float flying experience and going through training, most likely they were not sitting on top of a set of Claymar floats because mm-hmm. they're experimental. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you can't use broadly experimental uh, aircraft and, and floats in a commercial training environment. Mm-hmm. They have to be certified, with exceptions. With exceptions, like the air cam. <laughs> exactly, exactly, as we know. So, uh, uh, and we, we do not have STCs uh, to go on to certificated airplanes. So we play in that experimental space. And it's actually a pretty gratifying space because we can introduce innovations into it that might be cost prohibitive if we were in an STC certificated world. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of innovation going on in the airframes. Mm-hmm. In that, in that space. And, you know, maybe the most classic case of that is the venerable Super Cub. Yeah. How many, all, how many, you know, we, we kind of, it's almost comical how many uh, iterations there are of right. the Super Cub in an experimental form. That's right. And so, <laughs> exactly. And so what they've done, of course, as you're well aware, is they've, they've taken what is a magnificent platform and... They're each trying to put their own take on it and make it better. And make it better. Make it better. Uh, not, not that you're trying to fix faults, you're just trying to improve. Yeah. Apply new technology, some new techniques, some new thoughts. And I, I, I don't think I can, I mean, we could probably sit here for five minutes naming the <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's, it's unbelievable how many different variations there are of the Super Cub. Exactly. And I can remember my first experience ever before I got to know Claire with Claymar, uh, the, my first experience with Claymar floats was with a Dakota Cub in the early 2000s. And uh, we were looking at purchasing it. The owner was selling it. And I don't think many people had heard of the Dakota Cub at that time. Uh, and it was on Claymar Anvibs. Yeah. And that was my first, uh, it was a Super Cub iteration. Yeah. And uh, that was my first experience with Claymar going yeah. back uh, over 20 years. So And, and- you know, the Super Cub probably as a class of aircraft is probably the single largest class of aircraft mm-hmm. on which we install our floats. Now, the single airframe, what's the single airframe that? Well, probably the single airframe is Phil Lockwood's uh, AirCam. Okay. Uh, I think we've, in fact, we were talking about this the other day, and I should have the number at hand, which I don't, but I would say maybe we have 80, in excess of 80 air cams probably flying on our floats now, our 2180s, yeah. and uh, they seem to match up very nicely. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. I do want to get back to the manufacturing because there are things we need to talk about there, but since we're on the air cam, uh, we've got one here at Sun and Fun that has how many landings on it now? Well, Chiquita. Chiquita, Chiquita are, that, yes, it, which we, we all are fond of. Yeah, well, that's that's maybe inside baseball a bit. So, yeah. so, so it's uh, a yellow air ca- yellow and black air cam that's, that's very prolific because right now it's being used for multi-engine C training. It's the first air cam that has been given um, a, a, a certification to do the multi-engine C training program in from the, uh, has a LOTA uh, to accomplish. It, it, uh, exactly. And yeah. it's, it's prolific in its uh, We see it all the time because we live here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but it, it, it's at all the shows. It's at yeah, Oshkosh, it's everywhere. It's here. Yeah. It's, 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 it's been on Sport Aviation's exactly. cover. It's been on Water Flying's cover. Yeah. Exactly. But... Uh, Speaking with Phil this week, and each time I see him, I, I get sort of an update of the number of operations he's had with him because he's operating it in a, in a 
uh, a training environment. Mm-hmm. These, these things are recorded, so he, he knows with, with quite good specificity how much. So, uh, but he told me this week that, the, that Chiquita in that configuration, which is, I think it's been flying on floats five or six years, the last several in a heavy training environment, mm-hmm. you know, uh, eight hours a day, seven days yeah. a week, Quite literally. Thankfully, we're making a lot of multi-engine sea pilots because of that particular airplane. Exactly. Well, and and not not to get too far diverted, but Phil, uh, actually Jason, his head of flight operations, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I think said to me that in the multi-engine airframes right now, the air cam represents the majority of the fleet of multi-engine seaplanes. Seaplanes. Uh, outside of the Twin Otter and the Maldives, uh, Maldives, uh, there's very few, which was uh, something I got very involved in because we only have about 2,600 uh, multi-sea pilots. A couple hundred of those now because of Chiquita, because of Phil's program with the AirCam. Uh, but we had a very small, very at-risk population of multi-sea pilots and there weren't any options to do the training. Yeah. Uh, uh, there was uh, some twin Bs out there doing training. Uh, a very rare occurrence of a Beach 18. Uh, Grum and Goose that's incredibly expensive and hard to get a hold of to do multi-engine CN. And uh, there weren't any options. We got to a point where the one widget that was being used was, was coming offline. And we didn't have any options. And it was imperative from my perspective as the executive director of the seaplane association to make sure that we protected this very small population of multi-sea pilots and thankfully phil went to great lengths to get the air cam approved to accomplish this training yeah and and so it's it's a real it's a real asset from that standpoint but you know getting back so why we're so fond of chiquita yeah exactly (laughs) but so Chiquita, I am told, now has in excess of 8,000 water landings. Mm-hmm. Uh, unclear how many land... 8,000. 8, water landings. And I'll, I'll pat myself on the back, hopefully without, uh, without dislocating my shoulder, <laughs> uh, without any leaks. Uh, I mean, Phil will, will say that the floats simply don't leak. And, and you know, they're composite. So it's, it's, we, do, we do a pretty good job of building them. But and these just, are the new fluted hull design, so this was correct. a newer design that's as well. That's correct. That's yeah. correct. So it, it, uh, it expands upon the deep V hulls that had been in existence before. So they perform a little bit better, you know, get off the water a little better. But they're very rugged and, of course, you know, 8,000 landings in a training environment. So In I'm, a very short I'm, period of time, that's too. Right, that's yeah. right. I'm, I'm told that not every one of those landings is it's perfect. Soft. <laughs> In a training environment, yes. Uh, uh, it's not like it's an owner who's well-seasoned, uh, who's baby and his pride and joy when exactly. it's in a training environment. So exactly. that 8,000 landings represents uh, a whole different spectrum of landings than what a, a seasoned owner would do. And and he's beaming, by the way. I, I talked to him yesterday, actually. I pulled him aside here at the show, and we were talking about uh, the floats, and he is just beaming with pride on on how well those floats have have uh performed and and the uh uh the build quality on them well and 
and it's a, it's a testament, and I and I certainly appreciate the the accolades, uh, your comments, and Phil's accolades on it. But to me, it's also a testament to the overall setup. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that air cam. Is, <laughs> I mean, it has held up. Uh, I mean, the whole setup has held up remarkably well, given the the type of punishment that it can be subjected to. Mm-hmm. So um, and. Right now, I guess there's no, no indication that it is not going to continue on in that form. That's great. Well, let's get back to the innovative side of the manufacturing facility. So you weren't going to rest on the laurels of the success of these floats. And, and I know we've kind of had the ability to preview some of the things you're working on and some of the things that are actually on a set of floats here uh, now. Uh, talk about where the float has gone because you redesigned the hull. Uh, and then you didn't stop there, even though it was a great performing float. Uh, it was being a, a you know, it was proving to be a great success, but you didn't want to stop there. No, and so uh, we we looked at now. Claire did a very good job of developing layup schedules and using advanced technology or the the best materials and and the best process for those materials. So just, just to dwell on that mm-hmm. just for a second. So Absolutely. it's a composite float. Composite can mean different things to different people. So our composite layup schedule is primarily Kevlar. We use Kevlar carbon fiber foam cores, thermally formed foam cores, and we use e-glass. And mm-hmm. we use that in a vacuum infusion process so that we're trying to extract as much of the resin so you suck the resin through the weave. That's correct. And that's what creates the bond and the strength. I, of it. Exactly. Because yeah. you don't, uh, excess resin is simply weight and doesn't add strength. So you want to optimize the, the resin to, to fabric ratios. We like Kevlar because Kevlar is exceedingly impact resistant. Think bulletproof vest. I was going to exactly. say. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Uh, we like carbon fiber because it is exceedingly stiff. Uh, and if you look at the strength-to-weight ratios of carbon fiber versus Kevlar, they're about the same. Mm-hmm. But they have different properties in the way they deal with stresses. Exactly, exactly. Carbon fiber is stiff. That stiffness comes at the penalty of being brittle and, and doesn't have the shattering. impact. Shattering. Yep. It doesn't have the impact resistance that Kevlar has. Uh, Kevlar... Its downside, if you want to call it that, is it's more flexible. Mm-hmm. So we combine both. Primary materials are Kevlar. We'll embed carbon fiber in the places where we just don't want it to bend, mm-hmm. along the keel, where the gear attaches onto the gear housings, where the bulkheads attach to the, to the structure, where we just want the stiffness qualities. And we'll bury that inside the, in the layup so that it doesn't, it's not subjected to impact. Mm-hmm. I mentioned e-glass. One of the other downsides of Kevlar is it can be a bear to work with. Mm -hmm. It's hard to cut. Uh, It's hard to get it to behave itself if you're trying to sand it, which is virtually impossible. So we have our outermost layer and our innermost layer on the float design is e-glass, fiberglass. Mm -hmm. And that is... And is that more UV resistant? Because that's another thing that we have with these composite materials is they're also UV sensitive. Exactly. So, so the e-glass probably gives you some... It does. It yeah. does. It, it, it's a, uh, a more effective moisture barrier. So that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And it's also easy to work with. 
you know, so if, 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 so you get a boat like finish on the outside of the float. Exactly. I, I don't know how else to say that, but yeah. if you've been in the boating world, uh, you get that whole finish that's uh, right. by using the e-glass. That's, that's correct. And, it, and, and in the unfortunate event, if one of our customers bangs it against a dock or scratches it. Or, it's repairable. Or, it's repairable. It's eminently repairable, very easily repairable. Anybody, Unlike anybody with Kevlar. <laughs> yeah, anyone with, with basic uh, fiberglass skills uh, can repair the floats. They're very, very easy to repair. Uh, and the repairs typically are minor in nature. We're talking scratches and scrapes. Mm-hmm. Because of the impact resistance of the Kevlar, damage, uh, if you've seriously damaged the float, unfortunately, you've crashed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, You've done something. You've done something. Very significant. Very, very significant, exactly. And again, there's a lot of the stresses that go into designing these floats that people might not realize that aren't involved in it, is there are places that it's very important for the float to give. You want it to, to, to flex. You want it to breathe and operate. That's right. And then there's places where it's critical that it does not. And marrying the two and having the right combination of materials to get where where you combine these materials is critical too. When you go from a brick wall to a somewhat flexible surface, it has to have a very unique mating area. That's right. That's right. So, and you know, Claire did a lot of that work early, and we've then taken it and uh, and and polished it a little bit more, perhaps. Uh, but the basic structure it was very good, and and uh, we benefited from that. So. Some of the other advancements that, that we've tried to make is, and I guess this is probably drawing from my electronics and embedded software background and things like that, so it's, well, how can we embed sensors mm-hmm. into these systems and maybe make the structure uh, or the system a little bit smarter? Uh, the structure's pretty darn good. The design's pretty darn good. But rather than rest on that, yeah, to it's, your credit, it's you continually are innovating now. Well, we're we're, we're trying to. So, uh, we're one of the only, if not the only, manufacturer that for quite some time now has used electric actuators to position the gear as opposed to the hydraulic systems. Mm-hmm. And you know, kind of think um, uh, autopilot and flap control actuators. actuators. So yep. you know, they've been in aviation for for decades. Proven. And, and proven and reliable, and that's what we use. But and not the standard way that this is accomplished. It has, has not been exact, yeah. exactly right. So, um, so we've, we've done that, and then we've also tried, to, or not tried, we are implementing microelectronics into gear actuation, but also in the enunciation systems, mm-hmm. trying to keep people safe, because if it ain't safe, it ain't fun. Mm-hmm. So our gear actuation system does some alerting. Uh, it ties into the pedostatic system and, and notifies the or with the notion of trying to understand as the pilot setting up for a landing configuration, and then begins to do some audible prompts through your through your audio panel, as vi- as well as visual prompts to select the landing type mm-hmm. that you're intending to make, be it a land landing or a water landing, and we implement some tactical feedback requirements where one has to literally reach out, yep. select, and push a button, uh, trying to avoid the predicted or expected response syndrome mm-hmm. that we can fall into. And, uh, and then the system will, will take a look at the gear and tell you, hey, you're okay, go ahead and execute your landing, or 
You might want to think about that. You might want to position your gear in a different place if you're going to make that landing. Um, So uh, that's a system that we've had for a little bit that we've we've implemented and seems to be successful, works very well. Um, We have also implemented a radar altimeter uh, Mm -hmm. as an option for our system. And we embed the radar altimeter in the floats because it's a composite material. We can shoot the you radar can do signal that. Yeah, right through it like a radome. Yeah, so it keeps it out of harm's way. Once again, that's an audible system that ties into the audio panel. And it's, it originally was intended for uh, help in glassy water landings. Mm-hmm. You know, not those, obviously, you know, the set up 50 feet a minute yep. descent rate and yep. wait to the water and the float meet. Um, it's to give you another indication. And a lot of times it catches you off guard. Exactly. Uh, generally it does. So uh, now you have at least a secondary indication. That's right. And, you know, it, uh, surprising, uh, and this, this seems to relate to the air cam as well as others, but, you know, a lot of our customers uh, might be airline pilots. Not an uncommon And they're used to, used to these kind of systems. Exactly. And they, yeah. and they, they sort of have the, oh, yeah, I want that because I'm used to that. Yeah. And I want that. Uh, but we've implemented that. Uh, and our latest, which we are just beginning our initial installs, we've been underway with it for, oh, a year or so, is trying to make the cables, pulleys, and that element of the rudder handling system go away. Go away. away. Go yeah. away. Um, because we've, I'm sure we've all tripped on a set of wires on a, on a float at some point, and it's one of the areas that is sticking out on the aircraft everywhere. If you fly a, a float plane, there's generally cables and wires and pulleys everywhere on the airplane, and uh, you've, you've done a lot to reduce that. So we, we're, we're just releasing and have our initial installs underway right now, uh, on a servo-actuated rudder system, both the rudder control for steering mm-hmm. as well as a, an actuator uh, retract system. To, re- to extend and retract the yeah, rudder itself. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it's, it's a combination then of our experience with electric actuators, with servo controls, and some microelectronics. Uh, and you know, we're, we're embedding the first stages of a little bit of intelligence into that as well. In the sense of, uh, for instance, when the rudders retract, they center themselves. Mm-hmm. And they, they no longer... Which reduces the drag. It, exactly. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 there's no reason for them to be following the, the air rudder, which mm-hmm. they typically would do when connected to the air rudder system. So they just... Um, they I have to tell these- you, I was skeptical when I heard of, of this development cycle. I, I was the skeptic. And coming to the factory and, and getting to see how the system works and, and getting more familiar with it, uh, I'm all in. Well, <laughs> I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. <laughs> you know, there, there's certain airframes for which it is very beneficial, mm-hmm. uh, AirCam being one of them, yeah. just because of the – it can be congested in that section, especially twin pushers, and you're mm-hmm. trying to get up and inspect the engines, and cables are in the way and tripping over them and things of that nature. But I think – any airplane looks so much cleaner without the cables and pulleys. And it just, it, being an electronics and a microelectronics guy, it offended my senses that here we've got pretty neat technology in the, in the floats and we're trying to apply other technology and then we're operating the rudders with cables and pulleys and 
and hooks. Stuff from back in the 1930s. Exactly. <laughs> so I thought, well, I can. I know how to make that go away. So. And they are attached, by the way. These servos and actuators are attached to the most beautiful water rudders uh, that you'll ever see. Well, thank <laughs> Those are a work of art. Thank you. Thank you. So the other thing that, uh, that we are trying to do is uh, throughout the so the basic structure of the floats are all composite. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we've got mechanical parts. We've got landing gear. We've got swing arms. We've got axles. We've got you know all the things that, that it takes to make a set of amphibious floats. And so we've got other, other mechanical parts that historically have been 6061 T6 aluminum anodized. Um, and we're sort of going through that and, and trying to make as many of those Where can parts... We- that's right. Where, where can we use our composite technology there? Uh, it, you know, it, it, we're taking a couple ounces out here, a pound out here. Uh, Which I, Phil is obsessed with, with the air cam, by yeah, the way. Yeah. If you've ever spent any time around Phil, and I've fl- test flown, I don't know how many airframes with something that was three ounces lighter, yeah. you know. <laughs> Well, you know, the home-built guys, and we live in that business, right, yeah. in that world, and the home-built guys will tell you, well, if you can use a smaller gauge washer times a yeah. thousand, yeah. <laughs> and that's the mentality that guys who want to build light mm-hmm. uh, will take into it. And the forks. So you developed, I think, as far as I know, they're the first composite uh, forks for a f- set of floats, and again... Please, I, I would I would love to have one of those in my office just as a work of art because they not only are they incredibly lighter by what three or four pounds oh yes a little bit more little yeah bit more. I, I again yeah uh, it's it's if you look at a size of floats I mean uh, and you put that out on a lever arm forward on the airplane that makes a big difference because there's two of them sure. And, and and frankly so the the first things we looked at are the things that either extreme end of the float because yeah. in a weight and balance uh you know center of gravity consideration rudder those, on the tail and exactly. and then forks on the front so yeah. on the on the rudders we're we we've taken the conventional rudders which were aluminum riveted aluminum and the, those structures and okay we're using carbon fiber uh for the whole structure and and then on the nose wheel we're kind of chipping away at the forks now are carbon fiber and some other parts in there we're making out of carbon fiber so uh, you know we're just trying to apply good technology there's some real interesting things going on with speaking of 3d printing Mm -hmm. with fiber reinforced 3d printing uh, and so stand by you're going to start seeing gear components and things like that you know it's it's this this world of additive manufacturing and the, the auto manufacturers are embracing it big yeah. time. Additive manufacturing being 3D printing because exactly. you're actually every layer, every swipe of the printer is adding material. Exactly. Versus what we do with a CNC machine or traditional milling where we're reducing the amount of material from a block or a rod. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Build, build it up. And, you know, it's basically a printer that rather than lay down ink, it's laying down... Uh, thermoplastics and or even metal now titanium exactly really exotic metals are being laid down through additive technology exactly and because of the facility we're in and the assets that we have available to us the other nice thing is we can you know our designers can design something and we can take it out of a cad model dump it into a 3d printer 
and within a couple of hours we can be holding an instance of it and that may not be the part that we're going to use but it just takes you gives you an r&d representative exactly proof of design exactly exactly which formula one i mean all i can say as you know a formula one fan uh the formula one technology they're they're uh you know racing on sunday and sunday night they are engineering new parts for the race that that will be on the car. They will have prototyped them, they will have tested them, and they will have manufactured them and shipped them to the car wherever it is in the world on Thursday yeah. or Friday. For yeah. yeah, it's unbelievable. It it, it it truly is. So we're able to touch pieces of that uh, that that sort of technology and it, and apply it into what we're doing, um, and you know without. In, in niche, small markets, all of a sudden it opens these things up to you. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's really the, the difference with this technology. It's becoming more consumer level, I mean, or, or small and mid-manufacturer level, where it's been the, the, you know, the kind of the playground of the Boeings of the world and McDonnell Douglases, if that. Yeah, and, and just, just as a, a last point on that, so, for instance, on this, this rudder development project that we're talking about, so we have a design that holds a position pot that ties into our servo loop and it's kind of a custom built little part that has some interesting angles and gussets and things like that and we 3d print them you know if we were trying to machine that part and then anodize it um, not only the cost but the lead times to do so and we can 3d print it you know hit go and come back in two hours and there's your parts yeah Leave at night, come back in the morning, and, and the part's ready. That's right, exactly. It's incredible technology. And again, I, I want to hats off to Claymore. And if you haven't been familiar, if this is the first time you're hear, hearing of Claymore floats, uh, look them up because and search them out. Again, uh, Paul and Claymore are at Sun and Fun. They're at Air Venture. We're at the Greenville International uh, Fly-In. Uh, you really need to search these things out because these guys are developing leading-ed technologies and these technologies have literally been reserved for the big boys. And especially at the experimental aircraft level, a lot of stuff has been really grassroots historically. Well, we make a design and it works. And we copied this design from this design. And, you know, it hasn't been a sense of how do we make it better, 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 better. Uh, this constant and never-ending improvement process. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, in the aviation business, because aviation is a niche market in the overall scheme yeah. of things, you know, in, the, in a world market. And then we, we start to get into float flying or water flying, and, and it's a niche of a niche. Yeah, it's a nano and market. It becomes a nano market, and it's, it's challenging to apply technology cost-effectively to mm-hmm. it. But the confluence of the, of the capabilities and reduction in cost of the technologies and with, your with the need. facility, which was a godsend. Well, I mean. it, was, it, it, it made it feasible... Where where it would not have been feasible if if one had to spin that facility up on your own nickel, mm-hmm. nah, wouldn't have happened. I always talked about that. Um, you know, just again diverging for a moment. When I was involved in the early '90s uh, with Pompano Air Center, we were selling the Sukhoi aerobatic airplane, which the Russian government spent huge amounts of money developing because they wanted to win the World Aerobatic Championship. 
you could have never developed the Sukhoi with the composite and the titanium technologies that we were, we had solid on the first Sukhois, we had solid titanium landing gear, which is a strategic metal, <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, you could have never have built that airplane to market it commercially. And the brilliance of Brian Becker was to go negotiate with the Russians to say, we want to bring this to market because, they had already invested all of this just to win the world championship. But I, I think that the, the, the story here is that the Sukhoi, if you're an airshow fan or an aerobatic fan, would have never come to the, to the bigger market as an aerobatic airplane, as a competitor, as a consumer buyable airplane, yeah. because you could have never spent three or four hundred million dollars developing it. And then at the, at the time we were actually selling them for like two hundred and forty thousand dollars i think which was a tremendous amount of money (laughs) and you can't i think the new extras are like six hundred thousand dollars yeah well and you know the 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 other beauty is it uh, dealing in the experimental market so not only do you have the, the do people operating in that market have as manufacturers you have a degree of flexibility that you wouldn't be able to economically achieve in in the certificated world, but then you've got the br- the brain trust mm-hmm. of this huge customer base and and that are builders mm-hmm. and developers and designers and half of these innovations are coming from people who are out there that are thinking about how they want to do their build and and my phone rings from time to time and it's hey could you do this yeah and well there's a lot oh. of brilliant people out there so you, you it's funny you tap into this because. We may or may we may or uh, may not be able to talk about this, but I mean, to give you an idea, the kind of people that are flying these aircraft that will provide feedback to you, uh, the former chief technology officer of Google uh, yes, is yes. flying an aircam on floats. Yes. So yes. chief technology officer of Google, who also set the world record for the highest uh, free fall in history. Yeah. Very. Who paid for the development of that whole project out of his pocket. Yeah. <laughs> we, we also have a, a, a wonderful customer of ours who is a former structural engineer at SpaceX. Yeah. And, the phone rings and he is his brain is churning. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe since he's retired. Well, uh, Story Musgrave, yeah, oh, astronaut, absolutely, absolutely, the only astronaut to fly every space shuttle who's been on the podcast. Yeah, uh, who who you know we've been able to befriend and and get to spend time with. But the only astronaut that ever flew all of the space shuttles. He has like seven doctorate degrees and PhDs yeah. from brain surgery to astrophysics. Yeah. Yeah, amazingly smart guy, and uh, he flies an air cam on Claymars as well. Yeah, and, <laughs> and just just fine, fine point on that. There was a buzz. This is quite a few years ago when I was first getting to know Claire down at the seaplane base at Oshkosh. Uh, sort of a buzz came about at the seaplane base. You know, that's kind of a it's a it's a laid back, low key operation. Mm-hmm. Well, the buzz was because uh, uh, Harrison Ford mm-hmm. is walking down. To talk to Claire about the floats that he's going to put on his air cam. And, and he clo- does have an air the, cam. That's exactly right. They close the deal. Right there. I mean, how, how many people can we list? Jack Roush. Yeah. Uh, any racing fans out there? Yeah. Uh, Jack Roush has also been a customer. That's so. right. That's right. <laughs> and Claire's, interestingly enough, Claire's son 
was making uh, springs, high-performance springs for race cars. Exactly, which (laughs) we use on the floats. Which you use on the floats. That's right. There's so many things here, divergent conversations. That's exactly right. So uh, what have we failed to talk about or what's coming next uh, on the horizon for Claymore and your your float line? Well, I think uh, one thing that's going to be really interesting and I think is a game changer and it's frustrated many of us in the – light sport world, you know, the, the rule rewrite that is being referred to as mosaic. Mosaic. The FAA. We were talking know. about the other day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, let's say that it is going to be released. And, you know, FAA, one never knows when and how. But, you know, this idea that LSA aircraft, which is, have historically been limited to 1,430 pounds on floats, uh, let's just create a world where LSAs now can be four place, 3,000 pound. Um, all of a sudden, you're starting to grab a slew of airplanes that are now either have to be experimental because you can't justify the certification costs, but under an LSA, ASTM, uh, uh, best practices or mm-hmm. standards environment, perhaps you can. And I think some of the designs that we're going to see coming out of those, and you know, we're we're talking to some folks about what some specific requirements may be. Now that's sizing and, and float designs and things like that. But uh, I think you you know also start to think about some crazy ideas. Um, if anybody out there is uh, is a uh, America's Cup fan, mm-hmm. there's some interesting thoughts about how. Uh, vehicles travel across or over the water, mm-hmm. and uh, there may be some things there that that are that, developing that could be thought about, uh, and you know challenges, but at least the ideas are not uh, not crazy. So we're going to continue to do the things we're doing, just sort of minding business with trying to make what we've got better without mm-hmm. radical changes. Um, I, mean, I think we'll see some incremental changes on. On some of our electronics packages, you know, I think we can tweak to enhance our safety factors uh, on electronics. And, you know, the whole world, uh, just the advancement in avionics, uh, it just makes flying safer. So why wouldn't we apply it uh, into our end? Anything we can do to bridge gaps in safety and procedures and operational techniques, the better. Exactly. Exactly. Great stuff. Hey, Paul Richards, it is great to sit down with you here at Sun and Fun uh, uh, and to actually record our conversations because I love having these conversations with you, and it's great to be able to share them uh, with a a larger audience. Uh, Well, it's always great to see you. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, look forward to seeing you at the next venue. Yes, and I do not want to fail to mention that uh, you also just renewed your sponsorship of the SPA Corn Roast at AirVenture, uh, which is uh, if you do not have AirVenture and the corn, ro- the SPA Corn Roast on your calendar, uh, you need to make sure that Thursday night is reserved uh, to come join us and 750 uh, seaplane fans and fanatics and pilots and owner-operators at the Corn Roast on Thursday night during AirVenture. And you should go to the seaplanes.org website soon uh, to get those uh, because they will sell out. And every year we turn way too many people away. We have a hard limit of 750 people, which is 
really unfortunate because I think we could sell 1,500 tickets. I, I, <laughs> I think you could. It's a wonderful event, so we're happy to sponsor and look forward to seeing you and everyone else there. And uh, Air Ventures, the, the next one, come see us in Greenville. Everybody out there, if you haven't been to Greenville. That is a adventure or a uh, experience of a lifetime. It is, it is worth it. It so happens last year was, was one for the record books. I think the we're going to be hard. The most gorgeous oh, weather man. ever. Uh, and a beautiful uh, afternoon out at Lobster Lake. And if, <laughs> if people haven't seen the pictures of what I'm mean, a forty, a 40 or some 50 airplanes, airplanes wing to wing uh, lined up at Lobster Lake, yeah, that was it's a thing of beauty. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, so uh, we hope you've enjoyed uh, uh, joining us along for this conversation on the Water Flying Podcast. Please share it with your friends. Um, continue uh, as always. Uh, fly safe, fly often. One of the best ways you can ensure your safety is to work on those skills and fly a seaplane every opportunity you get and also do so with mindfulness to uh, work on those skills uh, while you're doing it uh, it's it's fun it's it can be just as enjoyable as flying out for a picnic and you can work on those skills when doing so so uh paul thank you very much i will have you back we will continue these discussions and until next time uh fly safe and fly often friends we'll see you we are so glad you joined us today if you like today's show I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive Water Flying, the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community. And it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School directory and a calendar of seaplane events, not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org, join our community, and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying. We are so glad you joined us today. If you like today's show, I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive Water Flying, the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community. And it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School directory and a calendar of seaplane events not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org, join our community, and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying.